This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome back to the Book Ride Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and we're talking about all the books and reading Recording on Thursday, August 5th, 2021. And no one cares. Everyone has their own experience with this. But our tech journey in the last 15 <laughs> minutes to try to figure out how to record this show has been really shocking. We're, I mean, su- surprisingly difficult. We're a little frazzled, as one of our coworkers, mm-hmm. Clint, would say. Like, this is modern telephony? <laughs> We've ahoy, tried Slack. Ahoy, 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 tried, ahoy, yeah. ahoy. We've tried Slack. We've tried Skype. We've tried different headphones. We've tried different, different Wi-Fi computers. networks. Yeah. So we're doing it here, and that was um, content. That's forty-five seconds of um, our lives that no one can get back, and us complaining about it. But we're here You're uh, talking about things. I'm Jeff O'Neill. She's Rebecca Shinsky. Coming to you from BookRiot.com. Uh, kind of. Uh, interesting-ish week. I've got off-the-menu items. Do you want to do that? Or yeah. I'm worried they might take the whole time. That's and I don't, okay. You know, so while we're in the showing you how the sausage is make, make, being made mode, what generally happens is that Rebecca is in charge of dropping most of the links into the agenda. She sort of has a passive filter throughout the mm-hmm. week, what seems interesting. I typically go look at it a few hours before we record, and if there's anything I've seen or I think is missing, um, I'll add it in there. And sometimes we're real excited about the link. Sometimes we're not. Sometimes I keep, I, I don't realize until I'm looking at feedback and I can't really drop a link in there. I've got some other topic I don't, because I like to hit her um, uh, like all like all good pro wrestlers from behind and with the back of a chair. Yeah, you love a good like publisher's weekly list that you can make me guess I, about. I really do. It's really my favorite thing. Um, so I've got a little bit of that, but do you want to start with those? You wanna, are there any links you want to make sure we hit? You know what? Let's start with those because things have gone okay. sideways and at least we can control this. There you go. We can control the things you're not ready for. That's a bad place to be <laughs> I'm in. But first, in. This is the state we're in right now. Is there you go. That's right. this moment. You're choosing for your mic not to work. All right. We're going to do a sponsor break and we'll come back in just a second. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Inez Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international best-selling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsy Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild-at-heart childhood best friend. So The Boys of Tom and Series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tearjerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. 
I think the the big news in the world of books and reading was not a world of books and reading news only thing this week. I'm not sure if you saw this. And again, the the only real news is that the date has been confirmed for the release of Amazon's Lord of the Rings series, Ooh. September 22nd, 2022. Okay. So we're a little more than a year away. Principal photography is wrapped and now it's just all computering in, um, you know, the, the, the leaves of Rivendell or whatever, <laughs> and making it look like a different place. I imagine it's a not small percentage of that production. There's a lot of well, we've leaves in Rivendell. <laughs> there's a lot of leaves in Rivendell, Showtime. Um, we, we know that they have spent a bajillion dollars on a this. Like it was either bajillion. this, it was like either this or beat Richard Branson to space for right. Bezos and Amazon. Like, you know, we'll take a few weeks on the rocket, the dildo rocket, and oh then we'll gosh. just make sure we get the thing out. I mean, I can't look at, I mean, we all know, like, did we they know? know? They're like, this is the best we, this is the best we can do. And they're like, yeah, let's green like that. I think we're done here. I don't never, never, never will understand that. Anyway, it's fine. It's nothing to be ashamed <laughs> of. You can use it in your next school board hearing to protest the book. <laughs> drop it on the table and yell. Yeah, just drop it on the table. Um, and that struck me because that's now in the can. It's coming. We have a date. This fall, we have Dune, which I don't know if anyone's been watching the Olympics out there, but they're they really put some money behind that, and there's a really beautiful trailer. It looks like it costs two bajillion dollars. Um, and then Foundation from Apple is also coming out in October. I think October 15th or 21st or something like that. So now, the three, I would say these are the three pillars of 20th century science fiction and fantasy mm -hmm. it, it, that started as books. Star Wars is to the side, and then you take Marvel stuff. But when it comes to books as we know them, these are the three. They're all coming out. And I think it's just worth like these, noting that. Are these bigger than Game of Thrones? And what is it? Wheel of Time hasn't been adapted, has it? Oh, it's coming out. There's actually there was a cover reveal for the adapt, you know, the TV tie-in edition. It's going to star Rosamund Pike, I think, in the, mm. the lead role. Interesting. That's coming out. I don't know exactly when. I think they are, I think they are bigger. I think... In terms of things that haven't been adapted, well, I guess Lord of the Rings was adapted. But these are the three big bullets, like the giant franchises mm. with trillion-dollar corporate. I mean, I'm not joking. Yeah. Trillion-dollar corporations staking the future of major pieces of their business on it. What a great time to be a CGI house, no. I would guess. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> um, my brother Kyle, who some of you heard or knew us talking about with Annotated, help us edit, um, works in post-production and sound. Um, and I haven't talked about this in a while, but it was really over the last year, like every audio engineer in the world is basically booked. If you're looking for a job, like try to learn how to do that. Be a nurse first because we need nurses and you're always going to need nurses, but audio engineers as well. And it just struck me as like, this is, there's, there's nothing waiting in the wings, which is, we haven't been at a place with this since my childhood of, are they ever going to make a movie of Wrinkle of Time, mm. Chronicles of Narnia, The Hobbit, X-Men, they're all kind of done. This, this is kind of, we're out. And here's the other thing, and this is where I was trying to get to, we've got nothing waiting in the wings. We've got no, there is no next book of the Hunger Games thing we're waiting for. There is no next Harry. There is no whatever. It's, it's kind of all taken up. Now, we've got adaptations coming of N.K. Jemisin and Octavia Butler, and I'm looking forward to those things. But in terms of mainstream cultural zeitgeist, this is, we're kind of tapped out. Am I wrong? Am I missing something? No. Or if you are, I don't know enough about 20th century sci-fi to know <laughs> what it is. Yeah, right. <laughs> but those are the biggies. And Dune is those that, the, like, the really big one that's just been sort of lingering forever. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it is weird that in this moment where the hottest thing you can have is a franchise, IP, ready to be adapted. In the world of books over the last... 15 years has provided a lot. It's mm -hmm. provided Harry, it's provided Hunger Games, it provided Handmaid's Tale, Walking Dead. If you extend it out to books and or uh, comics and graphic novels, whole, you know, multiple yeah. universes there, but like there's we're kind we've it's... we've kind of strip mined the 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 ravine and it's just like a big empty hole now. Yeah, I and we got to make do. I think that's true and that it's just going now it's just part of the production of books and TV that like can this new thing be an adaptation because we have mined most of the 
established properties and established right. like series or franchises have have landed somewhere in this like it's been done or it is being done or for some actual reason it won't be done uh, yeah. like you know the secret yeah. history won't be adapted for reasons of donna tart um there was a great piece in the atlantic this week that's on the agenda but we might not get to it because of whatever mm. your surprise items are for your wwe moment <laughs> um, that talks about how tv adaptations are changing literary publishing and one of the notes there is that rotten tomatoes cites that there are currently 125 literary adaptations in development at the moment and they even did some like meta-analysis of what properties uh, like what ca- you know kind of features in a book mm. Mm-hmm. more likely to be adapted and how that's factoring into not just the decisions about adaptation but even like books getting acquired specifically because they will be ripe for adaptation so we'll drop that in you can check that out that's from the atlantic by uh alexander manshaw laura mcgrath and jd porter yeah and you know i, I think also I mean, everyone at HBO and George Martin, I mean, bless his heart. I don't say that condescending, like bless his heart in an unprecedented situation, but no one should be waiting on that book. I think culturally we are no longer waiting on that book. Like maybe it comes at some point we don't, I don't think we're waiting on the Rothfuss book. That's not coming out either. Those are, I think the other two big ones, but like, I just don't know where you go from here. And in this moment, it, it is interesting how, and again, there's things like, okay, we've got Shadow and Bone. It's relatively recent, but it hasn't captured, I don't think yet, maybe it will. It hasn't captured the zeitgeist, it hasn't captured attention in a way that some of these other things do. There's the Court of Thorn and Roses, which is apparently a pretty big series. Sarah J. Moss, I think Bloomsbury publishes that, which I know a lot of people like. And having, And this is not disparaging them, but that is a lot of rope on the gym rope to slide down from yeah. Lord of the Rings to Court of Thorn and Roses. Well, it feels very similar to when we look at bestseller lists sometimes, and it's like the yeah, number one or right. number two thing has sold a floppity jillion copies, and then you go down to like just kind of a jillion for mm-hmm. the next ones, and there's that big step. Like There's just a, a huge space between the top, top tier, like ripest fruits for adaptation and everything else that can get adapted like if you have some kind of audience you can get an adaptation these days but right. it still takes a lot we don't have a monoculture anymore but it still takes a lot to break lot. into that top level where like you could be water cooler conversation if people still did water cooler conversation so to extend i mean we've said i've, I've called a top on the gold rush adaptations for what i'd say five years now rebecca yeah. i've called Three out of the last, I've called three out of the last one recessions, as they say, they make fun of economics for doing this stuff. But at some point, there isn't any gold. Like, okay, maybe to extend the metaphor painfully, there's more gold in the hills than I thought, but gold takes longer to make naturally than it takes to, to mine it. And I think the Lord of the Rings, the Wheel of Time, you know, throw those in there, the Dunes. Those were undervalued. Yes. They were just sitting in their they, hills getting bigger. Yeah, and were, no one could do it. No one could mine them successfully. Generations of people who had read those books mm-hmm. and were like wishing, hoping, waiting for an adaptation of some kind someday. And it's kind of like, yeah. you know, they say that like every writer's first book is the book they've been spending their whole life writing. Or like a musician's <laughs> first album is mm-hmm. one they've been spending their whole life writing. And it's the second one that takes like you have to like go deep and find new content and like produce some new ideas that you haven't been noodling on for the entirety of your life up till that moment. I feel like that's what's happening in in this world of adaptations that like in the first, I don't know, five or 10 years of it, we got all the, all or most of the things that like people who wanted to adapt big properties found them and adapted those big properties that had just been sitting there waiting. And it's meaningful that they had generations of fans to make it into a big thing. And now we're in the land of, you can write a a great new book. You can write a visit to the goon squad, which I think is in Mm -hmm. development for adaptation. You can get a solid readership who will enjoy your thing, but the audience for it is just going to be limited because we haven't been waiting for this our whole lives. It hasn't been a generation of fans that, that it was also big enough and it's meaningful that these things are like Dune, Lord of the Rings, Foundation, like they're old enough also that, you know, people had to wait and they came out at the time when monoculture was more of a thing and like mm-hmm. everybody read Lord of, like, you know, as my dad would tell it of being in college in the 60s, like everybody read Lord of the Rings and I inherited they did. his copy of The Hobbit, you know, that 
we don't have those anymore. We, there are not books right now that everybody who's like 19 is reading. And in 30 years, no. those people are all going to be waiting for the adaptation of that. Also, it probably won't take no. 30 years for that thing to get adapted. No, they get optioned before they hit the right. they hit the thing. You know, you know the Scott Rudin. What, there was one we saw this. Scott Rudin or other producers will go scout the thing before it happens. And I, I do wonder are we in the last 4% say of latent interest in properties that haven't been adapted yet? Mm -hmm. Like what, what basically is happening is you take, again, you adapt things for a lot of different reasons. One is a book is a a great minimum viable product. Someone makes a story, they create characters and you can sort of pick them up and do a lot of the storytelling work for a movie. Movie making is hard enough. I was saying without having to make the story and get all the character beats and all that kind of stuff. So, there is use in just adapting a book, even if no one cares about the book itself. Like, it's a ready-made package. I think we're past the point where you're going to say, boy, everyone loved that book, and that's going to make a meaningful difference in the performance of the adaptation that comes after it. I, I can't think of one where... I, I really can't think of one where that was a... That's really a thing. I mean, like, the one... The, the, the test will be where the crawdads sing, I guess. Mm-hmm. As much as we love that book, no one... There hasn't been a recent book that more people have read than that. And are we like, that book is going to be more successful than it would have been because of the people that read it? I just don't feel that way. I just don't yeah. feel that people are going to rush out and go see it. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm biased against it because I've read the book, um, as, to yeah. quote Virginia Woolf. Or, uh, yeah. Yeah, or no, uh, Dorothy Parker, pardon me. Yeah, I think, um, go ahead. I think that's an interesting test because Fifty Shades of Grey, I think, was more widely read. But it was also yeah. like such a cultural phenomenon that people went to see the movie who just wanted to know like what it what was going to be happening there, what yeah. it was about. Yeah. You know, I went, I did it like as a field trip with girlfriends. I'm like, I've read these books. Like, let's pour some Jack Daniels into our Coke and see what's going to happen for the next mm-hmm. two hours. And I don't think that's going to happen with Crawdads. So it's not the same kind of cultural phenomenon. It's a it's like, like a contained book phenomenon. There aren't just right. like people sitting in the world who have heard about the Crawdads book and want to know what it's about and be conversant in it, but aren't going to read it. It's not sparking some bigger conversation the way that Fifty Shades of Grey did around sexuality and BDSM. Like, I don't even know what bigger conversation Crawdads could spark. Um, (laughs) Wow, which is a statement. Wow. (laughs) That came out a little harsher than it sounded in my head. Sometimes... Off the cuff is straight from the heart. It's what we do here. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that, I mean, based on how many people read the Crawdads book, the movie will get some viewers, but it's not, nobody's like, you know, counting the days, I don't think, until that adaptation, the way that people have been waiting for literal decades to see the Foundation trilogy or Dune. So this is all entrance music, me coming off the stage with fireworks and smoke shows, and you know I've got my spandex on. Okay. <laughs> uh, this is all me ready. I've got the chair now. So Great. the chair is, what is the highest profile ongoing book series right now? Oh. And I, I took Martin and Rothfuss off the table, okay. if you'll agree with me. I'm willing to reconsider that. <laughs> but I think for this, take them off the table, because... There's a real chance we're never going to get either of those That's, books again. I a very think, real chance. I, sadly, I agree with you. Um, oh, my God. I don't know. It. I'm inclined to say it must be some YA thing. Is the Court of Thorns and Roses going still? Is that is that a th- is that a, is that still going? I don't know. I know people love terrible Sarah sign J. that we don't know. Let's say that yeah. terrible sign that you and I don't know. I that. love Sarah for everything. I, I know that people love Sarah J. Moss. I've not read her. I don't mm-hmm. know if that series is still going. Uh... Very tough. I mean, look, <laughs> I I hit my myself with the chair first because I tried to do this. <laughs> I'm glad that you don't have a an answer at the no i don't have an ace up my sleeve i I really don't i don't have a (sighs) the next move i made is like okay so it doesn't have to what if it's not a series but what if it's like you know like uh like our our boy langdon so it's not a series exactly but it's a Mm. ip right the the langdon ip well lost symbol going straight to peacock which i guess is where you put some of this stuff but no one cares Mm -hmm. about that no, no one cares about that. No one cares about that. Is there a... I don't think there's like a Nora Roberts situation that's getting adapted. 
There's not, weirdly, there's no. not a James Patterson TV. There's not an Alex Cross TV show, is there? No, they took their shot with Tom Cruise, I think. And as they Jack did. Or, or uh, as, no, Alex Cross was someone else. I get yeah. them confused. And Jack well, Richter, Alan Right, they Cross. did a couple adaptations. They did movies, uh. like, in the 90s. I think, like, ooh, I want to say, is Kiss the Girls a James Patterson? It is. That's right, because that was Denzel and Angelina right. Jolie. Yeah. yeah. But there are. Or no, that was a bone collector. They all get their own together because yeah, they're kind but of the same Kiss setup, the Girls anyway. was a movie and it's based on a James mm-hmm. Patterson book and that's a 90s joint. It seems yeah. to me like enough people read, certainly enough people buy those Alex Cross books that you could make a case for developing the Alex Cross series for TV. I'm kind of surprised that there's not one on like Amazon somewhere. Yeah, um, I mean... The Jack Ryan series with Krasinski was fairly popular. I uh-huh. watched those, yeah, and watched they those. were what they were. Mm-hmm. You know, I um, Michael B. Jordan is trying to make the without remorse Jack Clark. I think is the character's name Rainbow Six. But again, I don't. I don't think it's going to be successful. And they're so interchangeable, right? Okay, mm-hmm. it's another military fetishistic thriller about a guy who has been jilted somehow and is kind of working alone but also not with the tacit approval of the powers that be like we've seen that a million yeah. times before i there's not a big comic book property even i mean mm-hmm. it like what's sitting out there like we now have like three versions of the joker uh we're in the multiverse with marvel um, the most exciting thing to happen in the Marvel series was either the introduction of the Fantastic Four or X-Men, which we've already had movies yeah, made out of them before. I think book-wise, I mean, it's not nearly as high-profile as it should be, but N.K. Jemisin, I'm trying to remember if we've heard that those are being adapted. They are, but I'm not sure if it's The Broken Earth or The right. Inheritance. I've lost track of which of the, t- the multiple trilogies. The, again, those have a chance to be really interesting, great series, but again, it's pretty far. There, it's pretty far down the rope. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. Um, Ursula K. Le Guin. I was thinking about Wizards of Earthsea oh, might be right. interesting. There, I think there has been a series that wasn't awesome about that. But also, Wizards of Earthsea. How, what's the Q rating on that? Uh, it's pretty pretty tough. I think mm-hmm. on the whole. So I don't know. It's it's and I'm not saying this is bad or wrong or anything. I think. These are hard. These are hard things to do. And even the streaming services, trillion dollar companies have a hard time making a thing a thing. Yeah. Well, like they, this is a thing, a thing. It's, it's really, really tough to do. It's just maybe the hardest thing in culture to do yeah, I is think to make so. a new franchise or IP that people care and about on mass. They did the smart thing by starting with the lowest hanging fruit that had the like yeah. longest running desire from audiences to be a thing. So we've gotten mm-hmm. most of these at this yeah. point and interestingly the lord of the Rings thing like it's it's actually a spin-off essentially right, right. i mean jk uh jk jk uh tolkien <laughs> getting my j's mixed up he was like writing his own fan fiction for like 60 years so like there's plenty of like ephemera to, to run around with but even like you look what stephanie meyer is doing mm-hmm. you look what el e. james is doing they're like they're doing spin-offs alternate point of view like they're going back to the well. Um, Suzanne Collins went back to the well. Yep. Uh, Margaret Atwood went back to the well. They all, they all go back to the well. Um, it does, It does over time, I'm not a Stephen King reader. I don't like horror. And so I'm kind of, it was out from the beginning. And some of the stuff he's written isn't horror. But it does, re- it does remind me again what a wonder his career is. Because he doesn't write a six-book series. That's not how he made That's his true. bones. Like He's written like 50 billion books. And like 15 of them... Are have a Q rating above fifty percent. Yeah, I would say we're more than. It's just remarkable that's stuff. That's maybe the most surprising thing to me is that like HBO hasn't snapped up, you know, a ten adaptation deal with Stephen King for a bunch of the things that weren't already made yeah. into movies. Like we watched, I'm touch and go on Stephen King. It really depends on what the story Definitely, is going to yes. be. And we watched The Outsider last year, and it was creepy and good and well done and mm-hmm. beautifully cast. And I just I thought they did. 
a really wonderful job with it. And in the moment, Bob and I were having that same kind of conversation of like, what else is there by Stephen King? Like, there, he's so prolific. There has to be plenty stuff by Stephen King that even the like less popular Stephen King works are still very popular by regular book standards. Yeah. For I mean, they've tried The Stand, right? Yeah. Which was a failure. They've tied. There was another one, The Dark Tower, and I, I, get, I don't haven't read these series. And those are when I say he doesn't have a series, I don't mean he doesn't have any series, but he is not known for a series. Yeah, yeah. Right? He's not like synonymous with a series. Right. Which is 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 really um, pretty remarkable. So I don't know. I mean, maybe this era of relying upon the latent interest culture has in properties that haven't been well properly pop, or you know, recently adapted, um, ha- has come to an end because it's very difficult to do. Um, I'm surprised that anything in sort of the seed stages hasn't really caught on. It, it just it hasn't. Shadow and Bone is about the closest mm-hmm. thing I can think of. Well, and, yeah, um, and The Witcher. After that, it's tough. Was it a weird case? I think The Witcher was an edge case because the show got bigger than the books, yeah, and then right. it boosted the sales there. Mm. You know, Ernie Klein tried to do. You know, Ready Player One was a that was one where it was a book phenomenon, and there was a lot of juice around the movie because of the book. Mm-hmm. The movie was passable. He writes Armada, which wasn't great. Ready Player Two came out. I never read it because the people I know who did are like, eh. Yeah. Like it kind of fizzled out. Yeah. It just kind of that's this happens more often than not. I need Andy Weir to write a series that can go to Netflix. <laughs> that then well, we I would. I actually had that note for you. It's like, are we sure that the main character of Project Hail Mary shouldn't have been Mark Watney, and it's a Damon? franchise mm. are we sure that wasn't or the move can we in just some way? like retcon ourselves and forget that we know matt damon was mark watney and he can star <laughs> in all the andy weir movies like I or know. rewrite the screenplay for project tail mary so right. it is mark watney or something yeah. like because that would have that was mine it's like the andy weir vibe mm-hmm. is bankable i think it is it's going to be bankable and i think we've talked about it, like i think project hail mary is great it's going to be a really fun and interesting adaptation to see and when we were talking mm-hmm. when bob and i were talking about it the other night we were kind of there's like two time frames that the book moves back and forth between the present and then how the hero ended up in that present by flashing back and mm-hmm. we were trying to figure out what we think the construction of the movie is going to be right and i was like right. oh this is actually what i want i want this book to be a tv show because then you could do a really full like yeah. fleshed out here is where they are and sort of like then you step back for a whole episode and then you come forward for a whole episode or like a sort mm-hmm. of half and half thing like lost used to do where you'd have flashbacks yeah. built into everything and i just feel like we're gonna lose there's so much richness in that story that will be lost by condensing it all into you know two and a half hours that mm-hmm. and i would be down for like let's have andy weir write a series that we can all get excited about and then let's wait for that to be adapted I mean, it's a sign of how hard up we are for ready-made franchises in the world of books and reading that The Rock and Emily Blunt are starring in a show, in a movie based on a third-tier Disneyland ride <laughs> in the form of Jungle Cruise. But, and apparently they're both very good in it. I will watch The Rock and Emily Blunt <laughs> swashbuckle their way through Target. Like, I don't care. <laughs> Truly. I mean, so maybe it doesn't matter. and maybe I don't really understand, again... Disney operates in three-dimensional chess in a way I don't understand. Does that make me... Is that supposed to make me want to go to Disneyland more? So I can see the ride that is a, oh. that is totally not at all like the movie I just saw, which it can't be? Yeah, I, Or am I supposed to like the movie more because I've heard or been to... I'm, I'm not sure what the synergy or, there is. Or is I, it I don't as quite simple it. as like we're out of things to adapt, so let's go to the rides and see what stories we can make up? Like I guess so. I mean, it's a good title. You know, it's, it a, it's on the tin. It's a Jungle Cruise. I'm in. I like, I mean, that's, there's, you know, Jungles and Cruises, Great. both terrifying. Your favorite turns things. Out. Yeah, but I like both of those things. I can be motion sick and get bit by snakes. Wonderful. Sounds great. One of the virtues of a boat is not <laughs> like snakes, except on a Jungle Cruise. Family feud category of like the five places you're least likely to find Jeff O'Neill. Yeah, Two of them are right. the Jungle and Cruises. It's <laughs> really a tough look for me. So that, that, was, the, that was the one real... I'd love to hear podcast at bookriot.com. Like, what are we missing? If we miss something or if you had to draft like the top three, let, let's say you had, and maybe we can think about this for a future segment. Let's say you had three chips and with those chips, you could acquire any non-adapted book property. 
and for the purposes of this, we'll assume that they're there might you know we can't know if they're all options somewhere, but we don't act we don't know they're an active development. We just we just don't know that. What do you pick? Yeah, tell us. I'm having a hard, I'm having a very very hard time. Me too. Um, what else is let's in do your a sponsor break? Right. I got one more. I got one more sponsor break. This episode is sponsored by the one that got away with murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Um, while I was doing my um, my list for our summer, or excuse me, fall preview draft episode, we're going to use the same format again. This time we are each coming up with our own list. So we're not drafting off a shared list, so we could come out of left field. My long list now has 87 <laughs> books on it. Now, having said that, I fully rec- when I actually come to the ones where I might actually select and to try to, to, to defeat Rebecca Shinsky in the field of battle... Um, there's at least 30 of those that are just sort of for me and, you know, I just wanted to capture while I was and doing it. One of them is a history of spaghetti and meatballs. Yeah, it's a short history, though, <laughs> thankfully. I'll have to wait for the definitive <laughs> history at some point. Um, where was I? I lost my track. Okay, a couple of thoughts coming out of that list that I wanted to run by you. We can use kind of the old letter. One of my, I think I've told you, one of my old favorite Letterman segments was, is this something or nothing, mm-hmm. right? And so this is something or nothing for future, not full episode bit gig or uh, gags for us, gimmicks for us, but maybe like a half a show kind of a gag. Okay. Here's, here's a proposed gag. We read the Bill Clinton, James Patterson book and the Clinton Penny book and oh. talk about which one's better. Okay. Do are we do we like that? What do you think of that segment? We, it does require us to read two books, but let's say we didn't worry about that. Do you like that as a segment? Is that interesting as a segment to you? Maybe I am predisposed to assume that Hillary and Louise Penny are going to be way better than James Patterson and Bill Clinton, but I'm willing to collect the data and find out. Second question about that book. We talked about it before. How did this happen? Did did Hillary look at Bill and it was like I want a piece of that. Oh, I know. How did this I go know down? this. Hillary. You know, yes, please hit me with Hillary this. Clinton and Louise Penny are friends. They've been friends for a while. I know you told me while. that, but like, and but did they not, this didn't occur to them before? I, well, I mean, Hillary Clinton's been busy until the last know, couple of true. years. That's a fair point. <laughs> so Louise Penny was on an episode of Hillary's podcast last year, in the last couple year mm. or so, and they talked about how they've been friends for quite a long time and like write emails to each other about the books that they're reading and that Hillary Clinton loves Louise Penny's Inspector Gamache series and they decided it would be fun to write a book together. Okay. Um, That's observation one. Observation two is 
Do we need to talk about the Friends Renaissance? We've DM'd about it ourselves. Oh, I think. I, I guess I want to take yeah. the reader's pulse, but let's talk. Tell me about the Friends Renaissance because well, you you independently DM'd me and then I responded. <laughs> Let, let's let's bring this out into the open. Let's get so, it out there. Jonathan Franzen has a new book coming out. I think it's yes. this. Is it this fall? I haven't looked at the. It public. is. Okay, it's this. It fall. It is this fall. And it sounds interesting. <laughs> tell tell the people because I think it does too. Honestly, I don't remember what it's about at this point. I just, I'll hit you with it. Just, I'll hit you with okay. it then. I just remember that it came across my desk of like, oh, there's a new Jonathan Franzen book. I was doing my knee-jerk eye-roll response to Jonathan Franzen and then mm-hmm. read the synopsis and was like, you know what? That sounds like it might be good. And in the like original day of Jonathan Franzen, like when the corrections was a new thing, I read the corrections and I liked it. I don't know if I would like it if I read it today, but I have yeah. like, I don't have exclusively negative experiences reading Jonathan Franzen. And I think that I'm coming around on some of the mm things we previously perceived as bad takes that he had about the internet. <laughs> yes. So, he was right for the wrong reasons about some internet yeah, stuff, yeah, I I'd say. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. And so I think I'm I'm curious enough. I think the DM that we had was like, hey, I think I think I might read mm. the new Jonathan Franzen. And I've been seeing folks like kind of show up in my Instagram feed, also like having the galley and being excited mm. about it. And it feels like that's it's significant on the two levels of one that people are like excited about a new Jonathan Franz and, and that we're like outing ourselves publicly about it now. Well, that we're willing to keep our eyes and hearts and yes. minds open to the possibility yeah, that there's like something here. Acknowledging for us. it. Cause I think it's possible that it would have been like just a bunch of people secretly reading the new Jonathan Franzen, but folks are talking about it. And that was interesting to me. So I think it was about a month or two ago when we were kind of privately like, you know what? I think I'm going to maybe read the new Franzen mm-hmm. and see what that's all about. And I certainly like to know if the thing is good or not and not rely on the buzz. Um, I think that's what I'm I think I think we're gonna do it so is this something or nothing that should we do like a segment on an episode where we read it and talk about yes. it yes is that something is that something we're interested in doing is I like am. give the 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 try to give a fair shake as possible to the friends renaissance like is this a real thing well I guess the idea of the friends renaissance even now I think is real that was my first mm-hmm. question to you mm-hmm. but I, I had stacked it because I think we agree with that yeah. and the second one is do we want to mess with this particular title here um, yeah, I and think, see what we see? I think this is a thing. It's a something. Because assuming we both do read it, we're going to talk about it. Right. <laughs> so we might as well. Might as well put on tape. Yep. <laughs> so the I don't have the, the exact word wording in front of me, but the, the hook is that it's a multi-volume, like it's a start of a series or a trilogy or something like that. So it's a multi-generational saga that starts with, we're going to ring some bells here. Um, a preacher <laughs> uh, having a crisis of faith, both family and otherwise, I think. And it's begins in 1971. So it's kind of like our parents age mm-hmm. being middle age. You and I both love a multi-generational family saga. Yep. And we like preachers. There's a, all sorts of interesting and- stuff going on there. It's like ordinary people meets Gilead. I'm all in on this kind of thing. Yeah, I have such a weakness for crisis of faith. Usually it's crisis of faith memoirs, but I'm interested in Mm -hmm. what that looks like in fiction. There's potential here. Good. Yeah, I think. And, you know, I'm not going to be all in on the trilogy if I start the first one, but I want to give it a fair shake. I think the other thing that's happened, and I want to take your temperature on this too, and I'm really thinking through this publicly, so it's not all the way baked. The real first round of like enough already Jonathan friends and happened in a different time online mm-hmm. a completely different time in which the degrees of ass showing <laughs> online we did not know how low <laughs> your pants could go and we did not know the kind of stuff we were going to find out about people it's true and that Franzen was cranky about Twitter and was like maybe conflicted about being an Oprah's book club pick is way different than the stuff we've yeah. learned about some of these dudes. I think I think you're right that he was right for the wrong reasons. Like he was he had his hot takes about Twitter without yeah. really having experienced Twitter at a time when people who were on Twitter still loved it and were having a largely mm. positive experience with it. And this is like 20 I th- 2010 to like 2014ish was maybe like the golden time. 
Yeah. I feel like right around the time we started the site, because Twitter was the most important distribution awareness venue when we started Book Riot. That's where we weren't doing blogs, we weren't doing email, we weren't even doing Facebook, really. That came a little bit later. Right. Um, Or Instagram. And yeah, I think that's about right. Yeah, somewhere in there. And then, you know, the 20s, like the run up and then the 2016 election and everything that came after it have really changed Twitter and I think just the evolution of online discourse has evolved into a level of ass showingness. <laughs> Do we have to mark this episode explicit? I don't think so. It could be it could be a, a beast of burden we're talking about there. You, you know, you're parading your donkeys. Is that a euphemism for that? Parading your donkeys. <laughs> Showing your ass. Show title. <laughs> This, how um, have we not had a segment that's like today at the donkey parade? The, 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 the donkey parade. Yeah, we had turkey of the week, and it really became donkey the donkey parade. I mean, that's a good. That's this is a good analogy for the internet. We used to have like a turkey of the year yeah, or a turkey of the true. week, and now it's just like a daily donkey parade. And so I think that the feeling on like Twitter now, or the feelings about Twitter now, really resonate with what like Jonathan Franzen had to say about it. Yeah, six or eight years ago, and. He was at a weird space and time and maybe hadn't, like, wasn't speaking from experience about it. Mm-hmm. People do react negatively to that. Like, don't just preach from your ivory tower about this thing you don't understand. But I, it doesn't negate the ability to write a good book. Nope. And nope. Nope. That's what we do here. <laughs> so there's, I think there's three factors going into the, well, actually, I'd say four factors that have the makings. This, the, you know, the, the, it's like weather forecasting. You can see some things on the horizon that could combined to sh- to have a friend's renaissance. One, I think, is the things we dinged him for, just about his, you know, being out there online, we're in a different mode of, like, what gets a demerit and what doesn't mm-hmm. in a different kind of way. Two is the things he was cracking on then that we're giving him demerits for, we kind of agree with him through the side of our mouth. Things have transpired. We're like, yeah. you know, you weren't, you, you weren't wrong ultimately, even though... I'm not sure you could you you actually foreseen the things the way they they went. I think another thing that's important to talk about now is that when Franzen was at his peak, the diversity of books and reading is much was much 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 different than it that's is now. True. There's still ways to go, mm-hmm. but he is just one of many many now. Where he was on the cover of Flippin' Time. I mean, it's hard to remember, and like was the thing, and it was like was the the white hot center of middle brow to upper brow commercial crossover, whatever, competing directly with the Jennifer Winers. I mean, famously, the back and forth mm-hmm. in the Times and other places. I'm not sure if that war is over, but they're, if it's being contested, it's for stakes no one cares about right. at this point. So that's another piece of it is like he's not the centrality of him is less representative of the world of books and reading than it once was. Mm-hmm. And the fourth thing is he could write some books, as you yeah, said. Like, yeah. that's the other, he could, he, I mean, the, and I, what's the one with Patty? I can't remember. It's the, the one with the bird about the Freedom. cover. Freedom, thank you. Pretty good. It had, had some flaws, but what doesn't? It's hard to write. Can it's Here's another thing I've appreciated for now than more than ever, especially if we've had the genrefication of literary fiction. It is so hard to write a relevant contemporary fiction literary novel mm-hmm. right now. I think it's really hard to do because there's so much, hard to know what to grab onto, the world is much more interested in diversity of opinions. There's no center anywhere. So I think that's good. But in terms of like who writes the most, it's like Celeste Aang writes the most popular commercial fiction or it's, or you've got to write a beach book or it's like maybe has a time travel or someone got murdered. Mm-hmm. Like it's kind of hard to do. So I have an appreciation for how difficult it is to write a relevant contemporary novel about American life in a way that, can break through yeah, it's just very difficult it is and i think it's telling that the best work of literary fiction either of us has read this year or maybe in the last couple of years is one that is deeply about our relationship to technology with clara and the sun like yes a, just a right. straight up not genreified work of literary fiction right now with as with as entangled as our lives are with technology is really really challenging mm-hmm. yeah and you know there's been some that have been that have had a moment like um, such a fun age. You know, mm-hmm. some of those things have had a moment. Um, we thought some others might have more of a moment than they turned out to get. But like, it went from that being the only space of white guys talking about white guy problems to it's everything all the time and there's no center, which I think maybe gives 
you know, you, you need you need a comeback story for these to the, the Maconnaissance and other kind of azances. Like the, now, Brendan Fraser is having mm-hmm. a, a renaissance, right, and being cast and stuff. I think it's interesting to see that the world needs to move on enough to give you a, a chance, and the stakes have to be lower about whether or not we give you a chance. The temperature has to come down a little bit mm-hmm. to, to give it give you a chance. So. I guess I'm. I'm. I hope all books are good. I guess I don't know why I'm being sheepish about hoping. I hope all books are good. I hope this is this is one of them. So we'll have to see about that. Um, let's see. Any other bits that came out of this? Here's a concern of mine. Okay. Are we over food memoirs? Oh. There's the definitive oral bio. Today's episode is brought to you by W. W. Norton and Company Incorporated. So Negative Space by Jillian Linden follows a week in the life of an English teacher at a New York private school. At home, her children ask constant questions about mortality and her husband offers occasional counsel between Zoom calls. At school, something happens. She accidentally witnesses an ambiguous, possibly inappropriate interaction between a teacher and a student. But how can she be sure of what she saw? Negative Space is a portrait of a woman caught between the pressures of what's normal and what isn't, and examines what we owe the people who depend on us in a fractured and indifferent world. It's a debut novel and a short novel. It's perfect if you want something quick and easy to carry around, but it's also thought-provoking. It takes place during the pandemic, but it's not pandemic-focused, and it really just looks at everyday anxieties and low-threat situations that have high consequences. So make sure to check out Negative Space by Jillian Linden. And thanks again to W.W. Norton and Company Incorporated for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 And she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. Biography by Lori Wolliver, which is coming out, which... Is that the apex, the zenith? Like, what do I want after that? I got the Chang, right? Mm-hmm. We, we talked about crying in H Mart. And I'm like, where do I go next after crying with H Mart and eat a peach? And then the end of the Bourdain. This is going to be the end. I mean, this is this is the one we want. This is the oral biography. Like, it's, everyone sort of so g- doing the wake. I know it's good. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to do it on audio for sure. Mm-hmm. I don't think they took my... They took my advice that I gave them way too late about having the actual people telling the stories as the audio, but that's neither here nor there. But after that, there's so I saw a couple. There's a couple of food memoirs that seem fine. There's the Stanley Tucci one you mentioned. Mm-hmm. You said Josh thought it was pretty good, but okay. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I wonder if pretty good, but not. I wonder if that's the best I'm looking for. Have we done the food memoir thing? Like I don't know where the undiscovered country is uh, there. Talk to me about my feelings there. That's an interesting question. I think there's just such different kinds of food memoir like Mm. I I think that like Ruth Reichel and Tony Bourdain are doing completely or very different things in what what their food writing was doing and that David Chang it felt like Eat a Peach evolved that some there's the like gritty chef in the restaurant food memoir and then there's the here's what food means to me memoir and Mm. and Crying in H Mart I don't really think is a food memoir it's a memoir about loss and cultural identity and food is just part of cultural identity and if if it had been that like her connection to her mother michelle zahner if her connection to her mother was like that they went to tj maxx together and the you know or like some korean equivalent of tj maxx and it had been like crying in in tj maxx it would have not been like a, a retail memoir you know it's like that book is just not really about 
the, it, the food is in it, but it's not about the food. And I think I am always here for a well done, like beautifully crafted exploration of these important elements of our lives and food and eating is certainly one for me. But the I, it's like I'm upping the ante, I think, on what it takes to be a really good yeah. one. Yeah. Well, I guess you kind of came around to the point I was hitting, running up against, oh, Bourdain, Chang, Zauner, say, throw Stanley Tucci in there, throw Rick Bragg in there, book we like, you know. Mm-hmm. They are, the, the food is the hook, but it's about relationships and family and character. Like, Chang is the char- the main character of Eat a Peach, not the food. Michelle yeah, Zahner I, and her mom are the main characters. Bourdain is the main character of yeah, everything he I, does, whether right. it's quiet as it's kept or maybe loud as it's kept. Yeah, I think where I want to see things go next and where I think they might be going is like just books about food becoming a bigger deal. And the most yeah. noticeable, the most notable one that I've seen recently is there's the Netflix series High on the Hog, which is a, yes, uh, specifically about yeah, Southern black food traditions and the evolution of those where they came from. And that's based on a book that came out like almost 10 years ago, maybe more than that. Mm. I remember meeting the author of that at a SIBA conference, like back in my early blogging days. And so it's also taken that long for it to reach the hands of somebody who was like, this would be a good show and we should shine a light on what this book is about. So I think that's what, that's where I want to go with my food reading. And that's just where I, I'm just tending to read more books of that. Like there's just more straight nonfiction kind of happening in my life these days. Yeah, Like I just want to learn about this thing. And the lens of that one person's particular experience is becoming less important for how I learn about those things. And I'm sure it's true because I've read plenty of books about it, memoirs, that running a restaurant is hard and weird. Mm -hmm. Got got it. Message received. (laughs) We got that. I got that one covered. Also, that food is is pretty important uh, to people's identities and families. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Maybe I'll, you know, that's, it's like, I, I know what ice cream is. I, I like different flavors. I'll have ice cream from time to time, but hard for ice cream to blow my mind in a way that some of, you know, I had no reservations or uh, blood bones and mm. butter or some of those, you know, that kind of had the expose quality or like, I can't believe this is what people do. Um, maybe, you know, I was starting to think, okay, I would like, maybe there's one out there. Like, Who's been a waiter at like Chez Panisse for 50 years? Wouldn't you read that memoir? Like you're not the chef. You're just like making the thing happen. I don't know. I don't know if I've, I don't think I've seen one of those, but maybe there's there's still things to be mined there. But like the two central pillars of food memoirs, which are, boy, it's weird to run a restaurant and be a chef and cooking is hard. And there's the cast of characters and look at these rebel pirates. Um, And then also the... I really like my mom's biscuits, you know, <laughs> but insert food item from whatever region or cuisine right. there. Yeah. All kind of interesting, but mm-hmm. I know what that is at this point. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we need it's, it's time for uh, some new flavor of it. Yeah, right. Well, you're so the, I don't know. I don't know if that was something. or Yeah, is it something or nothing? I, I guess it was. Our food memoirs past their pro, past yeah. their peak. You're They're not. Uh, they haven't fallen to zero, no. but past the peak. You were correct that your surprise uh, spandex wrestling moment occupied our whole time today. That's it, Rebecca. Um, Whatever these other things we'll have to hit for next time, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. If you disagree or have other spins on the something or nothings, love to hear it. Also, your top three book properties that are... The, that you would bet on if you had to bet on to be turned into good adaptations or popular adaptations. Um, Rebecca's running late. That's what she, that's she's very polite me telling me because I wasn't paying you the time. And uh, we'll talk to you all later. Have a good one. Bye.